0: It was an hour before sunrise, when a little four-year-old boy named Michael was woken by his mother. She kissed him gently on the forehead and whispered, Time to get up, my dear. We've got a long day. Now, Michael was hungry, but he knew better than to say anything about it. He'd been hungry for as long as he could remember. What he didn't know, because they would never let on, was that his parents were even hungrier. For three years now, they'd been giving the largest portions they could, their children. And they had five of them. Outside, his father was leaning against a two-wheeled wooden cart. In it were blankets, a canvas bag stuffed with clothes, and a small wooden chest holding a few trinkets. A photo in a frame, a silver necklace that Michael had never seen his mother wear. Things of modest monetary value, but priceless family heirlooms nonetheless. Before they left, his mother pulled the curtains down on the two front windows and latched the door. It was a small gesture, but it was really meaningless because she knew full well they would never return. Together, the seven members of the David family started their long walk to the wharf, where they would board a ship and sail away in search of a better life. Between 1847 and 1852, just a five-year span, almost two million people left Ireland. This mass exodus was spurred by the Irish Potato Famine. That's what people outside Ireland usually call it. But there's another name for that period, a more accurate name, the one people used in Ireland at the time. The Great Hunger. Poverty and starvation had made Ireland an impossible place to live for millions of people. And so they left everything they knew and set out for foreign shores. The simple answer as to why this happened is that there was a blight on potatoes, a fungus known as Phytophthora infestans. Now that genus name, Phytophthora, literally translates as destroyer of plants. This fungus caused potatoes to grow dark and rot. The fungus had spread across Ireland cutting the country's potato production to a tiny fraction of what it once was. The other thing you need to know is that while there are dozens of varieties of potatoes in the world, there was only one variety grown in Ireland. It was known as the Irish lumper. Now that specific type of potato happened to be very susceptible to that fungus. And so when Phytophthora took off across Ireland, it took down all the potatoes. Since people had no food to eat, they either left or they starved. It's unquestionably tragic, and the explanation is frighteningly simple. But is that the whole story? The first thing you need to know is that at the time, Ireland was governed as a colony of Britain. I mean, yes, they did have representatives in the British Parliament, but those were mostly British men who owned land in Ireland. In fact, if you were Irish and Catholic, you were prohibited from owning land, so you had to make your living as a serf growing crops on land owned by someone else, probably someone British. You had to give money or a portion of your crops to the landowner as payment for permission to live on and farm their land. Now what happened next is political, and this is not a political show, so I'm going to do my best to just lay down a couple of facts and let you make your own judgments about who's to blame. Here's what happened. When the government in London heard that Irish peasants were starving to death, they enacted something called the Amended Poor Law. What the law said was that if you're a landowner, and the people who live on your land and your farm and your fields are starving, you need to feed them. And that sounds like a good law. But it didn't really work out. Since the poor law stipulated that landowners were responsible for all of their tenants, they evicted them to reduce expenses. Mass evictions began in 1847, most estimates put the total at more than half a million people forcibly removed from their homes. That is what happened to little Michael and his family, leaving them no option but to board a ship and sail to Liverpool along with thousands of other Irish refugees. Now, Other landowners took a more business-like approach, See, they found themselves needing cash to support all their tenants, and the only way they could raise that kind of money was to export something. And the only thing they had to export were food crops. So? I mean, they didn't have potatoes, but they did have peas and beans and rabbits and fish and honey. So they sold all that stuff to consumers in other places, places like England. And this was quite profitable because during a famine, the price of food goes up. In fact, by some estimates, during the years of the famine, while millions of people were literally starving to death... Ireland was exporting more food than it was bringing in. So it wasn't really just about a lack of potatoes. It was about a bunch of different kinds of food and who owned them and what they were choosing to do with it. And as proof that this was more than just too little food, consider the Irish potato blight of 1879. Yeah. Three decades later, that same fungus reappears, attacks the Irish lumpers that so many people are depending on, but it goes differently. By this time, Michael Davitt, that little boy who was evicted as a child, was in his 30s, and he had returned to Ireland, and he was a rising political figure, fighting for land ownership rights. Michael Davitt played a pivotal role a great national campaign to break the power of the landlords, That's from a BBC radio series.
1: This is a short history of Ireland in 240 episodes.
0: Yes, that's the short history with 240 episodes. Anyway. Michael Davitt had had a rough childhood. His family went off to Liverpool. Eventually, they found work as fruit sellers during the day and as teachers of other immigrant children in the evenings. Michael started working in a cotton mill when he was nine years old. But at the age of 11... He got his right arm caught in a mill wheel and it was so badly damaged that it had to be amputated. Unable to do physical labor, he became a student and a journalist and eventually a political activist, a leading member of what would be called the Irish Republican Land League.
1: To effect such a radical change in the land system of Ireland as will put it in the power of every Irish farmer to become the owner on fair terms of the land he tills.
0: It didn't happen overnight. But Davitt and his contemporaries did get some meaningful changes made. And that is why you might not have heard of the potato blight of 1879. You see, even though it was the exact same fungus attacking the exact same crop as 30 years before, it didn't cause widespread hunger and evictions and emigration and death. And that's because, well, yes, there was more diversity in the crops being grown and not all of them were as vulnerable to the fungus, but it was more than just that. It was also because three decades after the Great Hunger, the British government had a better approach to governance than passing a poor law. And it's because more Irish farmers owned their own land and couldn't be evicted. So yeah, there's a lot more to the relationship between crop failure and famine than just having too little to eat. That is what we're going to dig into today. Because we often hear explanations that invoke the excuse of having too little of something, like too little money or too little time. Maybe sometimes those assumptions are too simplistic, or in some cases, maybe they're just wrong. I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Symar. In this episode, we're looking at a very simple concept. I mean, usually if you have too much of something, like too much rain on your vacation, or if you have too little of something, like not enough days on your vacation, it's pretty obvious what the problem is, right? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that there may be more to the picture than that. In the cold, dark midnight hours of April 14th, 1912, in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean, Royal mail ship Titanic was cruising along quite nicely.
1: What did you see? Iceberg, get ahead, sir! Iceberg, get ahead, sir. How to stop it? How to stop it it is, sir. <laughs>
0: That sound clip is from a movie about the Titanic. No, not the one everybody's seen with Jack and Rose. This is from A Night to Remember, which was made in 1958. They started their turn too late. An iceberg ripped open the side of the ship below the waterline, and cold North Atlantic water started rushing in. What is
1: it? icebergs sir. I put a harder sabbat and reversed the engines, but she was too close.
0: The captain, at least in the movie, had a conversation with the ship's engineer.
1: The pumps are keeping the water down in this boiler room, but the first five compartments are flooding. Well, what's the answer? She's going to sink, Captain.
0: Well, you knew that part, of course, but their conversation continues.
1: How many people are there on board? 2,200 or more. And room in the boats for how many? 1,200.
0: That is a death sentence for a thousand people. But, and this is why I kind of like the 1958 movie better than the Hollywood blockbuster, sorry, James Cameron, there's one more detail they include in the 1958 film.
1: I don't think the Board of Trade Regulations visualized this situation. Do you?
0: Yeah, they dropped a reference to the Board of Trade. I love that. See, the fact that there weren't enough lifeboats for everyone wasn't some kind of mistake. It was standard policy. The lifeboats weren't intended to sustain the full population of a ship for a prolonged period of time in the middle of an ocean. The thinking was that life rafts were going to be used to ferry people from a vessel in distress to a rescue ship, and they'd make multiple trips, and eventually they'd be able to offload everyone on board. But of course, that assumes the ship is going to sink slowly, and it assumes that there's a helpful vessel nearby. Neither of those was true for the Titanic on that frigid night in 1912. And as a result, more than 1,500 people died. The disaster shocked the world, and there were many investigations and inquiries. Much of the attention, obviously, was focused on the lack of lifeboats. The result was a new set of rules. Two years later, 1914, the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea was announced. And it contains rules about communications and ship construction but the part we're most interested in is on page 76 it's article 40 and it reads at no moment of its voyage may ship have on board a total number of persons greater than that for whom accommodation is provided in the lifeboats and pontoon life rafts on board in other words the titanic disaster was deemed to be the result of having too few lifeboats and this rule guaranteed that there would always be enough britain the U.S. and 14 other seagoing nations signed the treaty, and from that day forward, the seas were safer. Well, maybe. It's a chilly and damp morning in Chicago. The SS Eastland is sitting tied to its dock on the south bank of the Michigan River. It's July 25th, 1915. Around 6.30 a.m., passengers begin boarding. Most of them are employees of the Western Electric Company because today is a very special day. All the employees and their families are being taken by ship to Michigan City, Indiana, a beach town on the east side of Lake Michigan, for a company picnic. An hour later, just as the last of the 2,500 passengers are stepping on board, something happens. No one's sure why, but for some reason, part of the crowd of people on the upper deck move towards the port side rail. That's the side of the ship away from the shore. Maybe it's the morning sun peeking through the clouds and they want to warm up in the sun, or maybe something interesting's happening on the far bank. We don't know. But slowly, almost gracefully at first, under their weight, the boat begins to lean in that direction. Then... Suddenly, the ropes holding the giant ship to the dock snap and it rolls over on its side. People on the open decks are thrown into the river. The ship sinks to the river bottom. Now, it's only half submerged because the river just 20 feet deep, but it is an incredible scene. This massive ship lying on its side just a few feet away from the edge of the river where people are just walking along the sidewalk on their way to work. A passerby on the far bank offered this description to a newspaper
1: reporter. I looked across the river. A steamer, large as an ocean liner, slowly turned over on its side as though it were a whale going to take a nap. I didn't believe a huge steamer had done this before my eyes, lashed to a dock in perfectly calm water, in excellent weather, with no explosion, no fire, nothing. I thought I'd gone crazy.
0: Inside the Eastland, it was chaos. Many of the passengers had gone below as soon as they had boarded to hide from the morning chill. Panic and fear erupted as the room tilted on its side and water rushed in through the windows. People were crushed by falling furniture and bookcases. Two grand pianos were dislodged and came tumbling across the room. There was no way to escape. 848 people died. An inquiry was launched into the tragedy. They studied everything that seemed relevant. The weather, it was calm. The experience of the crew, they were all capable. And the behavior of the passengers. Okay, so a few dozen people clustered on the rail. That should not have been enough to tip the vessel. But they found something else. They found that this disaster, the one that happened in the heart of a busy city just a few feet from the shore and in shallow water, actually shared one crucial factor with the sinking of the Titanic in the middle of the North Atlantic two years earlier. The reason for the incredible death toll in both cases was the number of lifeboats. The Eastland had originally been built in 1902, and for a decade it was used as a passenger ship, cruising the Great Lakes between Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago. But when the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea was ratified in the wake of the Titanic disaster, they had to retrofit the ship. Dozens of lifeboats were added. And so they wouldn't clutter up the decks or obscure the nice view, those lifeboats were hung from the upper railings. That moved the ship's center of gravity dangerously high. So while the passengers on the Titanic perished because they had too few lifeboats, the passengers on the Eastland were lost in large part because they had too many. Okay, I've got one more story to finish up my trifecta, and this one is more recent. A group of researchers was studying how really successful people use their time. Because time's precious, right? None of us have enough time. We all have too little. So they asked these really successful executive types to keep a time diary for a week. In 15-minute increments, they would mark each piece of time as either sleeping or eating or traveling or working at their desk, meeting with people, listening to a fabulous podcast about science, whatever they wanted to do for those 15 minutes. Well, one of those subjects on the Monday of that week, had a pipe burst in her basement. She had to get the pipe fixed, she had to have the carpets removed, she had to dry out the stuff that could be saved, and she had to get new flooring installed. In her time diary, all of this ate up seven hours of her week. Now when the researchers got a hold of that time diary, they were amazed. This was an extremely busy person with a jam packed schedule who suddenly found seven hours to apply to an unexpected task. So one researcher said, If I had asked you before this week if you could spare seven hours to learn a new language or go to the gym or volunteer at a food bank, what would you have said? And the subject admitted that they would have probably answered, I don't have enough time. But it wasn't really a question of having too little time. It was about what she thought was worth her time. It was a value assessment of the options presented to her and a flooded basement just ranked higher than learning Japanese. And you've done this too, right? I broke a tendon in my finger a few weeks ago, and I was slammed, but somehow I found time to go get it checked by a doctor. Now, I've been meaning to read a biography of Einstein for about three years now, and somehow I've never had time for that. Maybe when we say, I don't have enough time for that, what we're really saying is, that's just not that important to me right now. So let's recap. In Ireland, there were too few potatoes. But the deaths were largely due to how the land and the available food was distributed. On the Titanic and on the Eastland, people talk about the issues of too few or too many lifeboats, but those disasters really came down to how they were meant to be used and where they should have been stored. And as for our executive with the time diary, it wasn't really too little time, it was about how she set her priorities. Okay, so you're saying, fine Dan, that's a nice little theory, but how does it matter to the way science is done today? Fair enough. That's my job, right? I got to take the lessons from yesterday and apply them to challenges from today. Okay, here it comes. Let's talk about SIMAR and their efforts to end the epidemic of type 2 diabetes. Specifically, let's talk about the root causes of type 2 diabetes and whether we're dealing with too much of something, too little of something, or something else altogether. This is Dr. Jason
1: Fung. We talk endlessly about what the proper foods are. But we don't talk about, should we be eating all the time? That's what we need to talk about.
0: Jason is a doctor, and he's the author of several best-selling books on healthy nutrition. His research has led him to the conclusion that a lot of our society-wide health issues, like type 2 diabetes, come down to when we eat.
1: You have to not just look at the amount of food that you're eating, because that's only one aspect of it. But you're talking about too many times in the day. Over the last 50 years,
0: North American diets have seen some major changes.
1: So it went from bacon and eggs in the morning to two slices of white bread and jam.
0: That's because fats were labeled as bad for you and people switched to fat-free foods. Unfortunately, most of those were snacks loaded with carbs.
1: Now, the problem with eating a lot of highly processed carbohydrates is that you get this big spike up in glucose and insulin, and then it spikes down just as fast. So by 1030, you're just hungry. Then they thought, okay, well, since it's low fat, it must be good. I'm going to go get myself a low fat muffin. Same thing, spike up glucose, spike down glucose. By 12, you're you're ravenous again. You go get some low-fat pasta, spike up, spike down. By 2.30, you're like, oh, I need like a bagel or something because I'm just so hungry. So spike up, spike down. By dinner, you're hungry. You're getting yourself, again, a big high-carb meal.
0: That style of eating, high-carb frequent snacking, according to Dr. Fung, can lead to weight gain. And it also can put someone on a road to type 2 diabetes, which in some ways could be considered a disease of
1: excess. It's too much insulin and too much sugar, but not just in the blood, but in the whole body. It's when the body stores of glucose get overwhelmed, then it starts to spill back and starts to back up into the blood. And that's where you get a lot of high blood glucose. By that time, of course, it's not just a little bit of extra glucose in the blood, it's actually your whole body is full of glucose. So one of the strategies that is very effective is to say, well, if the problem is too much glucose, let's eat foods that aren't containing glucose. Because you can eat protein-containing foods and fat-containing foods. So you eat an avocado, for example, with mostly fat and a bit of protein, or you eat a steak, which is a lot of protein, a lot of fat there's no glucose there. So that's why these low-carbohydrate diets can be very effective in treatment of type 2 diabetes. Actually, the American Diabetes Association just last year said the low-carb diet actually has the most scientific proof of any diet for the reversing of type 2 diabetes.
0: But how do you change your habits and establish a low-carb diet? Well, Jason brings it full circle. He goes back to his original idea of when you eat. He says... If you control the when of your diet, the details of what you eat
1: will sort themselves out. The problem with snacks is that they're all highly processed because you're not going to get yourself a pork chop and slap it on at 1030. You're at work, right? It's like, what the hell?
0: Speak for yourself. I'm a huge fan of the 1030 a.m. pork chop pick me up. No, I'm not. That's just a joke. Here's Dr. Fung's point. The relationships are complicated when you're looking at things like what you eat and when you eat and the level of glucose in your blood and your overall health. In the next couple of months, Simar is undertaking a series of studies that'll look at what's going on in your body through the lens of a hormone called hepatolin. There's been a ton of research into what the presence or absence of insulin means for your blood sugar, but this will be the first clinical look at how your hepatolin levels impact it. Specifically, they're testing the idea that insulin turns your excess glucose into fat while hepatalin turns it into muscle. This is the process of nutrient partitioning. They're even going to look at one extreme scenario, intermittent fasting. That means going for long periods of time, like 16 to 20 hours, without eating. Although Dr. Fung says it's not really as extreme as some people make it out to be.
1: If you were growing up in the 70s, You ate dinner at 6 and you ate breakfast at 8. That's 14 hours of fasting. So if you were a bad boy and you got sent to bed without dinner, you're going about 20 hours.
0: Still, some opponents say that fasting means you're depriving your body of essential nourishment.
1: Okay, so when you say you're depriving yourself, you have to be very clear. What are you depriving yourself of? So are you depriving yourself of energy? That is calories. It's like, well, your body has like 200,000 calories sitting in your body fat. So you're clearly not depriving yourself of calories. If your body needs the energy, it will get it from its body fat. So are you depriving yourself of carbohydrates? Well, you're not deficient in carbohydrates. Are you deprived of protein? Again, no, unless you are extremely emaciated, then you have plenty of protein. So are you deprived of vitamins? Well, you can take a multivitamin if you want. But it's not like we're seeing a lot of scurvy or something in uh, fasting patients. So people say, oh, you're depriving yourself. It's like, of what? Like, what is it that you think your body is so deficient in that you must put that muffin in your mouth at 10.30?
0: Or pork chop for that matter. But he's making a good point. Next time you're strolling into the break room or the kitchen looking for a mid-morning snack, ask yourself, do I really have too little? Or do I have too much? So that's it. I'm Dan Riskin, thanks for joining me on Inside the Breakthrough, how science comes to life. Oh, one last thing. The Titanic may have had too few lifeboats, but they did have plenty of life jackets. They were these bulky things made of white canvas filled with cork. There were more than 3,500 of them on board, more than enough for all the passengers and crew. But sadly, wearing a life jacket doesn't do much to prolong your life if you're floating in the North Atlantic. Hypothermia is a bigger threat than drowning. The average person would only survive five, maybe six minutes in water that cold. So even having the perfect number of those wasn't really a solution.